On the count of three, call out the song that's been stuck in your head for a long time. One, two, three. Dvorak's New World Symphony. Concerning Hobbits. So, you guys know I love sports and I love cats. But what I really, really love, and, and this is not ironic, this is actually true, I love music. Uh, I, I love music so much that, I, I mean, I just, jazz, country, whatever. I, I like it all. I really do love music. But one of the downsides of loving music is that you have this uh, susceptibility. Some might call it a disease, a, a, a mental disorder that I have to live with. Uh, I think hundreds of people are infected with this disease, and that's having the issue of mental, no, 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 it's called earworms. Not like a literal, literal worm in your ear, but uh, I can hear a song, and it can be stuck in my head for a long time. For instance, one song that I cannot get out of my head, no matter how hard I try, is one by Sixpence None the Richer, called Breathe. I don't know why. Like, it's not, I don't love this song in particular, but it's been stuck in my head literally since high school. So, no, I'm not going to play it, because I don't want to do the damage to you. Oh, this song's called Hill, Dark Hill. <laughs> That's my favorite song. Should I, should I play it again, or are you guys doing your thing? Okay. Another song, and, and this one you guys might know. This one you might know. Oh, this one you might know. Here we go. Whenever you're ready. Starry Night, yeah, Hill. That's the other one. That girl with the face? That's the Cranberries. The Cranberries have this song called Dreams. Anybody know this song? It is a... No, I can't. I don't want to sing it. That's the whole point. It's going to be stuck in your head and you'll never get over it. Okay, here's a song that you will know. Here's a song that's been stuck in my head for a long time and I hate it. It's by Smash Mouth. And it's the one you're thinking of. All Star. Stuck in your head. All right. One more song that's been stuck in my head for a long time. This one a little, a little less, but I think you can relate to this one. Uh, this one's called Never Gonna Give You Up. Yeah. <laughs> Never gonna give you up. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then I watched the Lego movie, and they had that song, like, this song's gonna get stuck inside you. This song's gonna get stuck inside you. That song's the worst song ever. But here's the thing. There are some songs in your life that you never want to have ringing in your head. You know, earworm or no, there's, there's a lot of songs actually that I don't want stuck in your head. Um, but there is one song that I do want to get stuck in your head, and this one matters. This one matters more than the others. And because I don't have slides for now, we have it? Smash Mouth. I want you to have this song stuck in your head. And it's actually out of our passage tonight, Hebrews, uh, Hebrews, Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3 is where we're going tonight. Okay, there's Smash Mouth, there's Rick Astley. Yeah. Never gonna give you up. Okay. Habakkuk chapter 3 is a song that I want stuck inside your head because this one's going to help you deal with all the bad things that are going to happen to you. So the downside of what we're talking about tonight is that you should expect, and this is really part of my point here, you should expect bad things to happen. Not that you need to be neurotic or that you need to fret about it or suddenly become anxious and become a, a ball of mess, but bad things are going to happen to you. And that's one of the things I really wanted you to get from this last series of, I guess, four weeks total. We had that one last week in Apologia, and then we had three weeks in Habakkuk. I wanted you to see that bad stuff's going to happen. And bad stuff isn't just for people that are unbelievers, it's for believers too. God has an ultimate plan and purpose where he's going to deal with all evil. We talked about that. But what I really want you to see is that you as a Christian student, even just a good person, whatever your definition is of that, you're going to have bad things happen to you. Stuff that you won't know how to deal with and process. And Habakkuk chapter three is finally his resolve where he realizes, okay, Yahweh is going to judge the people uh, of Israel, Judah, actually, Judah, because Israel at this point, Northern kingdom has already been exiled by Babylon. The Southern kingdom now, excuse me, Assyria, the southern kingdom now is going to be exiled by Babylon, the Chaldeans. 
He realizes there's nothing I can do about it. This is going to happen. So, so be it, Lord, whatever you want to do. And so Habakkuk composes this song, and we don't know what it sounded like, but uh, maybe one of you guys is really talented could put some music to this. He writes a song about his response to Yahweh's future coming judgment. Now, I want you to pay attention to some of the facets of the song because it's brilliant. And it's maybe a song that you might sing and think about as you prepare to go through a trial, whatever that might be. But one of the highlighting features of Habakkuk's song, he looks to God's past provision and he says, okay, I know that you've provided in the past and therefore your future faithfulness is not in question. Your past provision guarantees your future, future faithfulness. And can look at all that you've done here and realize that what you'll do there is going to be good. I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know all that goes into that, but I can trust you in that. Let's take a look. And we're not going to go for an hour tonight. God willing. Here we go. Habakkuk chapter 3. We're going to go all the way through it, but we're just going to look at the first two verses for now. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the whatever that word is. A prayer, but is set to a musical quality. And we know that because at the end of the book, he talks about, um, no, he adds musical annotation, like he uses the word selah which could mean a lot of things. We think it might mean pause or reflect. Anyway, it's, he's writing a, a prayer in the form of a song. So this is what he's doing here. Verse two, O Lord, and that's the covenant name of God, L, capital L-O-R-D, O Yahweh, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. And this is beautiful. Look at this word here. In your, and, and notice here, in your wrath, Remember mercy. Think about praying that. Imagine God came to you and said, hey, uh, I'm going I'm to strike you with cancer and you're going to die in about three years, plus or minus. You might go through a season of saying, God, please don't do this. I have a family. I, I want to live. I want to graduate. I want to go to the college. I want to have a career. Please don't kill me, God. Let me live. Uh, but let's suppose that after a while, God finally says to you, you know what? Trust me, this is the best thing for you. At some point, you might say something like what Habakkuk says. Okay, God, you're the Lord, and whatever you do, do it. Please make your work clear to everybody, but in your wrath, in your judgment, be kind to me. Don't, don't give me all that I deserve. Let this be easier than perhaps it might have otherwise been. Essentially, what Habakkuk prays here for is God's will. Look, God, I know you're going to judge people. And you're going to judge us as your people, Judah. So please be kind to us. Point number one, I want you to pray like Habakkuk prays by praying for God's will to be done. Pray for God's will to be done. Simple as that. I want you to imagine with me uh, that you hear about a man piloting a Cessna. You know, one of those passenger planes? Passenger plane, he's flying around South Orange County uh, and he's getting ready to land. And so he, he calls in to air traffic control, John Wayne, and he says, hey, John Wayne, this is, uh, you know, such and such handle, looking for, you know, landing clearance. Air traffic control says, Roger, you know, lane one, come into this angle, this direction, this height, yada, yada, yada. And then the guy confirms, okay, I hear you over and out. And all the while, he's, he's wondering why traffic control is directing him on a path that he knows is not the most efficient. He's asking himself, well, Maybe he misheard me, or maybe, maybe there's a miscommunication. I know what I'll do. I'll take the path that I know to be the most efficient and most probable path to take, and I'll just assume that the guy on the other end of the line at air traffic control is maybe just having a bad day. And so this imaginary guy charts his course, and he flies and starts to land at John Wayne. But as he's landing, he realizes all too late that there is a Boeing 737 headed right toward him. Boom. <laughs> In case you couldn't tell, I did that graphic myself. That <laughs> was not real. Don't be traumatized. The man in the Cessna kills himself along with hundreds of others because he failed to listen to air traffic control who has a far better view of the, the surrounding area. They know the weather. They know the various planes in the area. They know all the data and they're making decisions and they're giving him the decision based upon all that they see and all that they know. Can the driver or the pilot rather of the Cessna know that that's happening? Well, I guess if he, he had the equipment and he had the computer, he could you know, pull up his iPhone app and look at, look at stuff, but he doesn't do that. 
He instead makes his own decision and thus consequently ruins himself and, and several others. And, and this is exactly how you and I can be. We look at God and we say, God, well, why, what are you doing with all this? Uh, you, know, you should do it this way. This is far more efficient. This is far better. And yet what we should do, instead of arguing with the air traffic controller, we should say, okay, I trust your plan. I trust that you're seeing things that I'm not seeing. And for me to argue with you is foolish because you're working with a lot more information than I am. I have this much, you have that much. So all together, you need to pray for God's will to be done first and foremost, because this is what Jesus himself does. When you pray for God's will to be done in the evil day, when the cancer diagnosis comes, when you fail out of high school or when you get kicked out of your house or, or when your career path gets derailed or when that girl that you asked out uh, says no to you or your longtime boyfriend breaks up with you, or your dog dies, or heaven forbid, your parents bring home a cat. Whatever it is, the <laughs> evil day that befalls you, you need to say, Lord, your will be done, even if that means we have a kitten now. Whatever it is, God, you have a plan, you have a purpose. Jesus himself showcases this. Take a look in Matthew 26 with me. I'm going to just show it to you on the screen here. Jesus uh, goes through this interesting dialogue with God the Father. Now remember, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. There are not three gods, there is one, one God and three persons. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, is praying to the first person. And, and look at what he's doing here. In fact, let's, let's read it together. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. He's in the garden. This is right before he's going to go to the cross. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over, the, over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Pray with me is another way of saying that. Verse 39, and going a little further away from his friends, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup of your wrath, your judgment upon all humanity, which I'm going to take on myself, let this pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, it doesn't stop there. Keep reading with me. Verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, hey, you couldn't watch with me even one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 43. And again, he came and found them asleep for their eyes were heavy. Verse 44. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again, not as I will, but your will be done. What are some things we can learn from Jesus? Well, first and foremost, if you're going to pray for God's will to be done, you ought to pray with others. Whatever's happening in your life right now, even if it's not a tragedy, it's not an evil thing, you ought to be bringing people in your life to say, here's the real deal. I am struggling with A, B, C, or D. I need you to know that so that you could be praying with me. He brought Peter, James, and John, and he said, come with me, men. Come, pray with me. I'm sorrowful. I want to die. I feel like I'm dying. Please pray with me. How many people in your life how many people in your life really know what's going on in your life? And not just the superficial, like, hey, pray for me. I got a test coming up on Thursday. I mean, yeah, if that bothers you, yeah, bring it up. But the real stuff in your life, the things that really matter to you, where if, if things don't go well here, you're going to be crushed. You need people to carry the burden with you. You need people that are going to help and come beside you and pray with you, especially if it's something where it's like, oh, man, uh, the cancer diagnosis, you know, my mom's going to have a double mastectomy because of the breast cancer and it's metastasized or whatever it is. Uh, you need people to pray with you. That requires that they know exactly what's happening. Jesus was honest with them. He told them the truth. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Therefore, pray with me, men. Jesus also comes and he prays with confidence. He doesn't just, he doesn't just go to the Father and, and, and ask, hey, you know, back to, I should back up. He calls him Father. I know that's a small point, but it's a big point. Jesus calls Father, Father. He calls God, Father, the affectionate, protective, loving one. When you approach God, it should not be for you a begrudging task of, here I go again, I have to talk to God about my life. No, you ought to go with confidence, knowing he loves you, he cares for you more than you could ever know or fathom. God cares about the small, nitty-gritty details of your life. For you to not go to him is for you to set yourself up to fail. Because when you, when, you, when you don't go to God in confidence and trust him to take care of you, you're trusting yourself. Your trust is now misplaced from trusting God to trusting you. You also ought to pray for alternatives. When you're praying through situations, I, I, I appreciate, that about, uh, appreciate this about Jesus, the God man. He prays, Father, if there's any other way, let's do that plan. If we can redeem humanity without me dying on the cross, and let's do that thing. I don't want to do this one. 
I appreciate that because it tells me that Jesus in his human nature was not, uh, what's the word? I don't want to be careful with my words here. Was not at a point where he knew everything. In his human nature, he didn't know everything that God was doing, the Father. In his human nature, in his divine nature, he knew everything. Now, I know that can get confusing, but as a human, in his human nature, Jesus was struggling with what the Father was doing. And that means, like you and I, in his flesh, as we struggle with God's doing in our lives, we should go to God and say, God, if there's any other way, please take it away. You should pray. Matthew chapter 7, ask, seek, and knock. Whoever asks, what? Receives. Whoever seeks, finds. Whoever knocks, the door will be open to you. You should pray. And you should pray for alternatives. But I also really like how Jesus ends the prayer. He ultimately says, but nevertheless, even though he prayed three times, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Um, raise your hand if you're perfect. Great, none of us. Jesus, the Son of God, was perfect, without sin, without flaw. He was the Lamb of God who was spotless, and yet the Father still sent him through seasons of pain and difficulty, and this was the culmination, the climax of that. Young person, you and I are not perfect, in case to state the obvious, and therefore, we should not have any different expectation that God will not send us through horrific, trying times. That's really, again, the whole reason that we've gone through this series. I know it's coming for you, and for I know most of you, some of your leaders have given me feedback. You, don't, you haven't gone through anything. You don't know what it's like to lose a, a loved one yet. You don't know what it's like to go through tragedy yet. You don't know what it feels like to have your heart ripped out of your chest because of some big thing. I care enough about you to say, I need you to be prepared for it, though. Jesus suffered before us. We ought to realize that we're going to suffer after him. The world has fallen. Our flesh has fallen. Other people are sinners. You ought to realize that it's coming for you. And like Jesus, pray in these ways. Pray with others. Pray with confidence. Pray for alternatives. And pray that Jesus, God's plans, will prevail. Pray for God's will to be done. And this is going to be a timely one, even in politics. Anyone have any idea what I'm referring to? So it seems like the Biden-Harris ticket is going to succeed. And I don't presume to know how you might have voted if you, you know, had the opportunity. Some of you guys I know are over 18. Adults, certainly in the room, voted a certain way, I'm sure. But let's just make a couple of quick observations. If Biden and Harris are eventually certified as the ticket and, they're, and he's made president-elect in December and then January 20th, He's being sworn into the Oval Office. I think it's going to be terrible for America. It's going to be terrible for us. Us as in collectively America. And here's, here's a couple things. Uh, religious freedom is always one of those tricky things where sexual freedom is always going to take the priority. And it looks more and more that way. Um, Biden said today, uh, or at least he reported that he's going to overturn some of the pro-life legisl legislation, the executive orders that President Trump put into place He's going to undo those. He wants to have as many people as possible have access to on-demand abortion, no matter what age that baby is, even if he's just outside the womb. Still want you to have the option to murder your baby. Instead of what we've come to know and appreciate and what has benefited us as a society, we're going to try to embrace socialism. Uh, and even though he's, de he's denied some of that, um, it's, just, it's just not going to be a good season for us. Not a political pontificator. I don't, I don't know all the ins and outs. But I can say this. It's probably not going to be good for us. And I've struggled with this. I, I, I've diff, I have some difficulty with that. Maybe you would have voted for Biden and Harris. I know given the polls, your population as a whole, Gen Z loves Biden and Harris. Uh, so I, at the very least, your friends would, would, are, are looking forward to this. Now, whatever the case, let me just point out one thing to you. Whether you're a Trump supporter or a Biden supporter or something in between, let me just point this out. God often... No, let me try this again. God decrees all that happens, even the people that are terrible leaders. Remember in Jeremiah 25, if you're reading the Bible with us through DDR, you read something interesting. Jeremiah says this, Behold, I will, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for, get this guy's name, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Look at those two words after that. My servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. 
Now, remember, who's the king of Babylon? Who is, uh, who is Nebuchadnezzar? He's the one who causes uh, Israel to be exiled. He's the one who comes and destroys. He's the one who comes and undoes everything that uh, God's people thought he was doing. He destroys them. He destroys them. And yet God says, that guy is my servant. President-elect Biden is my servant. President Trump is my servant. No matter who's in office, no matter who's leading, no matter who wears the crown, presidents don't wear crowns, but you get my point. No matter who's there, it is God's choosing. You say, I don't like that because that's going to be bad things for babies. It's going to be bad things for religious people. Yes, yes. And it is God's choosing. Now, it's not to say that we shouldn't vote, shouldn't try to create laws and pass them. But I want to say, even as we do that, even as you vote for the right things, and even as you think the right things, you have to remember that God is the one who's ultimately controlling every nuance of history. Everything that happens, happens because God wants that. Everything that occurs is because God wanted it to happen, no matter what that is. Pray for God's will to be done, even in politics. And know that as Christians, if you are a Christian, this is for you. Scripture reminds us, and let me just point something out here. Scripture reminds us that for this class of people, look at this, for, those, for this class of people, for those who love God, so it's not for everybody, but for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So if you're a Christian, if you're one of those who loves God, everything that happens to you is for you, okay? If you love God, everything that happens to you is for you. It will be for your good, and it will be for God's glory. Yeah. Like a good air traffic controller, God's directing the plans of your life, and it's far greater and more comprehensive than what you'd see at an air traffic controller. You know, you see all the planes on the screen. He sees everything, every single detail of every single person's life and of the universe, he oversees all of that and he's directing that according to his purposes. But I want you to notice this in these next few verses here. Habakkuk doesn't contemplate suicide. He doesn't become an agnostic. He doesn't challenge God. Instead, this song shows the kind of response he has. Take a look here. And in fact, I want you to read it with me. I'm just going to, I'm not going to put it on the screen. There's a lot of text. I just thought it was too much. So let's just read it. Habakkuk chapter three, verses three through 15. Uh, Read it with me as we walk through this text here. It says this, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Mount Paran, Selah. Essentially, he's trying to draw attention back to Israel's redemptive history. God came and visited us on the mountain. He delivered information to Moses in this reign, in this territory. His splendor covered the heavens and the the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. The rays flashed from his hand and uh, and there he veiled his power. Before him was pestilence and plague followed at his feet. You might be reminded of the Exodus and how God delivered Israel out of Egypt. Verse six, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. In other words, he says, even these mountains and these hills that look like they're permanent, God's permanence is so much greater that he shakes them down to their roots. They crumble in his presence. He's the one who really is everlasting. Verse seven, I saw the tents of cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Verse eight begins a new section. He says this, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode uh, rode on your horses or your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and they writhed. The raging rivers swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It's, it's, it lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at, at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. Pardon me one second. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the horse and the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced his own arrows with the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Okay, 
in a nutshell, here's what Habakkuk is doing. He's rehearsing all of Israel's history. He says, in this period of life, God came. There's a theophany. God appears. In this period of our history, God comes and defends us. Arrows, mighty warriors, you know, uh, the, 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 the moving of rivers and waters. God has shown to be exceedingly strong such that no one else can stand against him. God comes, God conquers. God comes, God conquers. That's the point here. In the first half, God comes. Second half, God conquers. This is not your history, right? This is not your life. But point number two, you ought to recount God's past goodness toward you just like Habakkuk does. He looks back at Israel's history and realizes, oh Lord, but you've been good. You came and you conquered. God's past goodness. Young person, if you don't have many things to point at to say, man, I've I've really struggled on this there in my life and this this thing, and you've been blessed. God has been kind to you. That's not the case for everybody. Remember, my parents divorced in high school. We lived off of food stamps. You know what food stamps are? Food stamps, when you don't make enough money, so the government gives you handouts to say, here, use these food stamps and go get, you know, go get your basics from the grocery store. We did the food stamps. My dad has been imprisoned several times, several times. In fact, for the, for the majority of my high school career, my dad was absent. I begrudged him for that. I hated him for that. family friend of ours, uh, kind of a man who drank a lot, him and his wife separated, and so he goes to her apartment, and he's in, he's in the middle of the street. He calls out to her and says, and I'll spare her name just so you can protect, protect these guys here, calls out to her name and says, if you're not going to be with me, then I don't want to be alive. And so he takes a canister of gasoline and pours it all over himself and sets himself on fire. Not only does his Wife see that, but all of his little girls at that point in time. Now, that's how I knew this family. They were friends, hung out all the time. Those little girls see their dad set himself on fire. How tragic. Tragic. Close family friends who are victims of sexual assault. I mean, and, and the list goes on and on and on, guys. They have family members who gave themselves to addiction and alcoholism. And I'm not saying all this to, to warrant your pity. You know that, right? I, I want you to see the fact that there is life outside of these, as this uh, Orange County, well, even in the Orange County bubble. You're just not aware of it. Life outside of your life that is, is hard to watch, hard to think about, hard to, to look at, to fathom. And yet, even as I look back at my life, I could still see God's faithfulness in mine, even through all the stuff that I went through. I, I missed my dad for a lot, a lot of my young life. I missed my dad. I, I, you know, I didn't have my dad to go look to. I didn't have my dad to teach me how to fix a car, even though he was mechanically inclined. I didn't have my dad to teach me Spanish, although he knew Spanish. I mean, I, didn't, I missed my dad. I missed him. And yet, I can look back and I can say there was like five different men in my life that in many ways were my dad. They loved me, cared for me, and been a father to me. And, and, and they're one of the reasons, among many, why I serve Christ today, because he used those men to say, I know you don't have your earthly father the way you want, but here's the body of Christ. Let me show you what the body of Christ is and why this is a better plan than what you would want. I can look back at my life and see God's faithfulness. This is one of the reasons I tell you guys a journal. You need, to, you need to find a way to capture what God is doing in your life. Let me just make a couple quick points here. To recount God's goodness, because God is impeccably good, there is good things in your life, even if you can't see it right now. And I know for some of you, you might, you might wonder, well, is God really that good? Well, let's just state the obvious here. Scripture repeatedly states that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. That's how one theologian puts it. God is the ultimate standard. All that he does is worthy of approval. I put it like this in Luke 18, 19. Uh, I put it like this. Jesus said it this. <laughs> Jesus said to them, uh, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. James 1, 17. Every good and perfect gift comes... Uh, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is impeccably, wonderfully, uh, persistently good. 
God is good. You need to remember this and keep this in your, in your thinking firmly and completely. But it's not only that he's good. Uh, God has offered ultimate salvation in Christ. So if there's no other good in your life, at the very least, you can say the most pressing problem I have, my salvation can be fully and completely resolved in Christ. Your sin can be forgiven. You can be right with God. You can be acceptable to him because of what Jesus has done. He's offered ultimate salvation in Christ. Christian, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in Scripture, you'll notice that in old, on the, under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, Israel constantly looks back to the Exodus. It's the biggest redemptive event in their history, which is why they keep pointing back. Like, oh, I'll talk about, you know, the, the plagues and pestilence and being delivered out of Egypt. Well, our Egypt, our Egypt is our salvation. We've been delivered not from, from Egypt itself, but we've de- been delivered from the domain of darkness. We've been delivered from sin and death. And now Jesus leads us to a new heavens and a new earth. That's to come. See, no matter where you find yourself in this life, if your salvation is not the thing that's most precious to you, you're missing a big point here. If your happiness, if your uh, emotional optimism is based on anything other than Jesus Christ and him crucified, your trust is misplaced. So God is impeccably good, and he shows this by giving us ultimate salvation in Christ. Here's the thing that you should remember. If God made you a billionaire or, you know, whatever, you had the body, you had the money, you had the job, you had everything you ever wanted in this life and did not save you, everything in this life ultimately does not matter. But on the other hand, if God saves you and he makes you poor and ugly and you don't, you're a failure all throughout your whole entire life, you're 80 years on this planet, and yet when you die, you get to see Jesus raised, you get to see yourself made brand new, you get to enjoy the new heavens and new earth, you have everything that is worth living for. You can't have your hope in this life. Your hope must be in the next. He's offered us ultimate salvation in Christ, and that's super good. That's better than anything else. Non-Christians in the room, let me plead with you once more to think about this yet again. I know we get criticized because we talk about Jesus' wrath, and we talk about hell, and we talk about the fact that before God, you are a guilty sinner, and God will condemn you justly as a good judge would. I understand that that's that's not kind to hear. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't make you walk away and think happy thoughts about yourself. I understand But please understand me when I say that that's the most important thing you need to hear. Because your biggest problem is not that you need to get a great score on your SAT. Your biggest problem is not that you're in a hybrid learning model that's really difficult. Your biggest problem is that you stand at odds with a righteous and holy God. And when you die, unless you have Jesus covering you with his righteousness, you will be chopped down at the knees and you will be justly condemned for all eternity because of what you've done in this life. That's a hard place to be a hard thing to hear, but that's the truth. And that's why Jesus is so awesome, because he gives us the opportunity to turn away from those things that offend him, to turn to him and have true life, life everlasting, abundant life, real life. Because God is impeccably good, he has offered ultimate salvation in Christ, and he's also preserved redemptive history for us. One of the reasons we encourage you to read your Bible all the time is because in the scriptures, when you read these things, you get to have a God's eye view of how he's worked throughout the millennia. You get to see his commentary about all that's happened in the life of his people. And, and what I want you to know, in fact, here, here's a couple of verses. Romans, um, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction. instruction. Scripture is there to help you. Romans 15, 14. For whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction. The whole idea here is that God wants you to read throughout all the scriptures and see how he's interacted with people just like you. Habakkuk is a guy just like you. He just lived a lot longer ago than you have, but he's just like you. Regular flesh and blood kind of guy. God spoke to him, said, hey, bad things are coming. He trembles, he's afraid, and he goes to God and says, please don't do this. And God says, no, I'm gonna do it anyway. Trust me, it's the best thing. And he says, okay, I guess you're right. Now, we read that in a span of, what, 20 minutes? You could read all of Habakkuk, maybe in 10 minutes. And what what you're not seeing there is all the time that develops between that. In fact, time is such a big thing. You think about Moses. Moses was 80 years old before he began to work with Israel, leading them through the wilderness. 80 years. His first 80 years of life were preparation for this event. 80 years of his life. Think about how long that is. Some of you guys are 13, 14, no, yeah, 14 through 18, right? Give or take. 14 to 18. 
You would have to multiply your life four times over to get close to how long it took Moses to get prepared for what he was doing. Think about Joseph. Let me get a little closer. Joseph, um, J- Joseph uh, he's the guy that the, the brothers are jealous. They take off his coat and they throw him in the well and they tell his dad he's dying. he died. Well, remember when Joseph goes to Egypt, he's falsely accused. And because of, uh, because of God, the way that God crafted his story, he's thrown into prison. You want to know how long Joseph is in prison? As long as some of you have been alive, 13 years. Joseph is in prison for 13 years before he's released. And why is he in prison? Is it because he was a bad guy? No, he was a righteous guy. And yet God let him stay in prison, innocent. Jesus spends the first 30 years of his life in obscurity. He doesn't do anything. He lives a normal life, a perfect life, but a normal life. Gotta remember, guys, God is not in a hurry. I know in your, our lives, we, we, we want God to move quickly. We want God to do things for us, and we, we're afraid of God not, not delivering us from the trials that we're going through, but God's not in a hurry. God is not slow, but he is deliberate. Which is why... At the end of the day, God expects us to humble ourselves before what we really won't be, ever, won't, won't be able to ever fully understand. I wanted you, I want you even now, to have a confidence of God's goodness, to trust him. There's two things in the Bible that might cause you to question his goodness. Two things, maybe a couple more, but there's two big ones that stand out. I talked about this last week briefly before we dismissed. One of the things that people charge to Christians, say, hey, your God is... You know, your God is, isn't as good as you say he is. If he were truly a loving God, why does he allow evil? But one of the things they might point out to you is, okay, okay, Christian, if you think your God is good, then why does he endorse slavery? If God is really good, why does he endorse slavery? Well, let me just make a couple quick points here. Okay, the next two subjects, slavery and genocide, take a lot of time, okay? There's, there's books written on the subject, and in fact, there's there's some good books. If, if you want recommendations, let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a couple. But minimally, here's some of the things we can say about this. Uh, the word slavery is used in the Bible, and, and it is often talked about in ways that would make us uncomfortable. However, however, one of the things we should recognize is that the slavery that Scripture refers to is not the kind of slavery that we think about with, in, uh, with uh, chattel slavery, you know, the American South slavery. This is not the same thing. Uh, let's take a look. Some of the texts in Scripture tell us, uh, whoever steals a man and and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. You kidnap somebody, and you sell him to somebody else, both of y'all die. Okay? That's already not what American slavery was, right? Or not, not what Israelite slavery was. Theirs was no kidnapping allowed. You can't do that. That's, that's one of the first rules. Uh, another element of this, in the New Testament, uh, Paul tells Timothy, his young protege, he says, if you find someone who's an enslaver, uh, a, a, a man-stealer, that person is also subject to, to, to hell, essentially. Um, people, okay, sexually immoral, men who practice almost, we typically look at those, those, that part of the verse when we're looking at this, but notice that word there, enslavers. Teach, he says, teach these people about the truth. That's not what God wants. That is antagonistic to the gospel. In other words, this is wrong. Enslaving is wrong. American chattel slavery already, already has an issue. In fact, uh, you can even go a step further. Deuteronomy 25 says that if an Israelite received a, a runaway slave, what were they to do with the runaway slave? Well, it doesn't say send him back to their owner. See, but in ancient Near East, that would have been the case. In fact, for Babylon, the code of Hammurabi, they would say, if you got a runaway slave, your obligation is to send that slave back to the owner. If you don't do that, you have the possibility of being uh, killed yourself. And so in scripture, uh, there's protection measures here. If you have a runaway slave, don't feel like you have to send him back. Verse 16, he shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose with one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. Doesn't sound like... American South slavery to me. In fact, if we could just summarize really quickly here, uh, this is really a form of indentured servitude. Uh, Biblical slavery was, I have a debt to pay, I can't pay it, so let me pay with my work. I will uh, sell myself to you, in a sense, where I will give you my services, I will be your slave, it's indentured servitude, where I will do whatever you want for you until the debt is paid. And there's actually loopholes in that too, because you could actually be released. There's ways that you could get around this. Uh, no kidnapping was allowed. We already talked about that. Uh, also, uh, help runaways and treat foreigners well. 
By the way, one major point that a lot of people miss on this is that both the Old Testament and the New Testament affirm the imago Dei of all humanity, not just slaves. Women, children, black, white. And so when we talk about slavery, you have to take it and put it in its proper context. When someone throws the charge at you, God is not good because he allowed slavery. You have to say, well, hold on a second. Let's back up and let's understand the context of where we are in history and what God is actually saying to Israel in this period of time. We could say more about that, but that's a really good starting place. When you think about slavery, think about it in its larger context. Well, what about that, those sections that tell us to kill the Canaanites and the Amalekites and to leave all of them without breath and to kill the men, women, and children? Okay, this is a little harder. This one's a little harder, but there are answers to this. Really, there's, there's two, I have some notes here. A couple quick things. When God says to the people of Israel to take out a certain population, to wipe them out. Um, the word genocide is often used, right? The word genocide. Now, I'm going to argue with you that God cannot commit genocide. And it's quite obvious as to why. First and foremost, it is God's prerogative to give and to take life. It is his divine right because he's God. If God is God and, it is, and, it, and he is who we think he is, we have no reason to doubt this, it's his right Young one, he could take out your life right now. And in fact, I would also say this. The, the reason you see acts like this from God is because he is exercising his divine right to judge sin. That is good. Whether or not you and I want to agree with that doesn't feel good to me, but that is good. If you had a police officer who pulled over everybody but never issued tickets because he had, you know, oh, it's my friend. Oh, I go to church with that guy. I'm never going to issue tickets because, you know, he's got a compass sticker on his car. That's, that's crooked. That's crooked. That's not right. God doesn't play favorites in the sense that he, he judges sin when and how he wants. And that's for all of us. All of us at any moment of our lives could, could be killed by God. And if God kills us, it's not murder, it's not genocide. It is God's divine right to exercise his justice with us. So, I could, so God doesn't commit genocide. Once again, we have to think about the context of this happening. This was a unique period in redemptive history. Uh, obviously, this is something that, okay, think about this. Israel was a, uh, was a theocracy. God himself is leading the nation of Israel. We are not led that way. We don't have a theocracy. God is not speaking scripture to us as he was in those days. So God was doing something very specific and unique at this period in history. And to be clear, God doesn't command us to do this today. So the, so the crusades that everyone talks about, you can't, you can't justify that. You cannot justify this. Uh, God doesn't command Christians to do this today. This is not something he, he did in the past. But let me say one thing here. Don't forget that God also promised some of the very same destruction to Israel herself. In fact, some of the very words that are used against the Amalekites and Canaanites, God takes those words and says, by the way, I'm going to use it against you, Israel. Israel, if you break the covenant, here's what's going to happen. And it gets pretty dicey. God says to Israel, if you break my covenant, you're going to eat your kids. Seriously. And he meant that literally because they would be besieged. They would have no access to food. And so they would eat their own kids. So scripture says about Israel, when you violate my covenants, I will punish, judge, destroy. <sighs> Doesn't make it a whole lot easier. I get that. But again, there's a lot more here. God is just. God gets to choose what is right and what is wrong. Our job is to humbly submit to him and to let God be God, as hard as that might be, even in cases where our minds and our hearts are offended. God is still immeasurably good. Let's close up here with these last three verses. A couple of quick points. Habakkuk says, okay, Lord, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will Quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. This last part is beautiful. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. 
the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. That's how you know it's a song. That's the last point, last line of the song. You've got to determine to build your confidence in Christ. No matter what. And, and right now, you should be practicing this. Right now, you should be exercising that confidence. Just out of high school, my vehicle of choice was a 1987 Honda Accord. It was beautiful. Purred like a, no, barked like a dog. This isn't it, but it looks really close to it. Thank you. Hey, don't covet, don't covet. She had 220,000 miles on it when I, when I first bought it. When I sold it, it was just under 270,000 miles on it. I guess sold is not the proper word. When I junked it, it had 270,000, <laughs> almost 270,000 miles. Inside, she was beautiful, clean. Like that steering wheel was just the perfect width to hold. Had an e-brake right here so I could just er, glide on the, on the street. The thing missing in this photo is that I had Scooby-Doo seat covers. It's high school, right? It's high school. I mean, it was just a clean vehicle. My 1987 Honda Accord, I had a lot of trust in that car. So much trust, in fact, that I decided to drive it to Las Vegas. And so I did what everyone does on the drive to Las Vegas, and you drive a little over the speed limit, a little. Maybe, well, no, hold on. I drove to Las Vegas to meet a friend. I got there safely. It was great. It's like, this is a great car. Like I, you know, I was young, I was 20, or whatever it was. I was 20, I was, I was living my life. I, I, to be clear, I wasn't gambling or anything. Like that. I was meeting a friend, it was seriously. So then when I left on whatever day it was, I was driving back from Las Vegas. And, you know, retrospect is clearer than <laughs> in the moment. But there's a few things about my car that I forgot. I forgot that my car leaks oil a lot. A lot of oil. Like I had to put like a whole new thing in it. I don't know. I just, I, I kept, I, it was leaking so much oil. I kept different quarts of oil, like several of them in the trunk. Cause like, oh, it looks like the, you know, engine lights on. I'm going to go put some more oil in. And so I never needed an oil change because I was just putting new oil in every week or less. That wasn't the issue that got me though. I also forgot that my, 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 the alignment on the front tire just it wasn't right. And so what would happen after a period of time is that the tire would get misshapen and then it would eventually pop. I forgot about that. So on the way home, <laughs> I'm driving in the middle of the day. There's traffic all around me. I'm driving, driving, driving. And suddenly I hear that sound of my car making like it's, it's the sound just before it explodes. And I hear the sound and I, I, like my heart sinks to the bottom of my stomach and I'm thinking, oh no, not now, not now, not now. Because I'm going like, well, not very fast. I was going speed limit. <laughs> <laughs> and before I could do anything about it, it popped. That wasn't the worst part. It popped and then I spun. And when I finally stopped, because you know, at that point, like my heart's going like... You know, like, what's happening? I'm going to die. I stopped. Like, so, okay, if this is the street, right? If this, is, if this is back and forth, I stopped like this. So driver's side facing this way. And I see an SUV barreling right toward me. I couldn't do anything. I just had to sit there and wait to see what happened. I made eye contact with him. And I'm pretty sure I telepathically, te telep I sat with my mind. I sat with my mind, the words, please don't kill me. And I think he heard me because he saw me and he saw that I was like stuck. So he jams his foot on this brake. I could just see it like his whole body, you know, like one of those things. He just saw his whole body do it. And the car is stopping and he's skidding now. He's still making progress toward me. I'm thinking, Lord, this could be it. He stops within inches of my door, like inches. 
It was a great movie. <laughs> and then I died. <laughs> Just kidding. I lived. My confidence in my beautiful blue 1987 Honda Accord was misplaced, to say the least. God is not a jalopy. He's not the kind of God that you put your confidence in, and when you really put the pedal to the metal, he suddenly breaks down and pops a tire. In fact, God's a lot more like my new car, the one that you could put full confidence in. This beautiful beast has never done me wrong. And that's why Habakkuk says, Lord, whatever you want then, I trust you to do that. I'm afraid, but do what you do anyway. Do what you do anyway. Guys, you need to build your confidence in Christ. Well, why? Well, because your, your emotions are terrible masters. If you let your emotions drive your decisions, you're going to do dumb things. And that's just as true in your faith that is, as it is with everything else in your life. You must learn to not let your emotions dictate what you do and do not do. That's why he says, look, I'm afraid. I, I hear my body trembles. My lip quivers at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. Habakkuk is resolved even though he's terrified. I mean, look at this. Read that. I'll quietly wait for the day of trouble to come. I know it's happening. I'm terrified. Lord, please don't make it happen. But if you do, show, uh, show mercy in your wrath. Help us, please, I pray. I beg you. It's a lot like, it's a lot like wedding vows. It's a different Sarah. This is not you, Sarah. Stop thinking this is all about you. Man. Wedding vows are a lot like this. And now you say, hey, uh, no matter what happens, right? In sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, I give you my life. I'm not just acting on emotions here. I am saying I commit myself to you even if things go south. Young person, you're going to say something like this. I mean, for the most part anyway, right? You're going to get married at some point. You're going to profess your love for some gal. And you're going to say something like this. Your relationship with Christ ought to be a, a, a little like this in that it's not conditioned upon your feelings. Feelings are terrible masters. But really, when it comes down to it, he is your greatest need. And, and that's what Habakkuk realizes. Habakkuk realizes that his greatest need in this life is not the fig tree blossoming, fruit being on the vines, or produce of the olive. He says, even though there's a national collapse, economic turmoil, we have an identity collapse as a nation, even though that happens, I will trust you. There's no other better refuge than God himself. So I guess we, I can leave you with that, guys. No matter what happens in your life, if Christ is your refuge, you need not fear anything else that happens, whether it's life-threatening or whether something less challenging or innocuous. Your job in this life is to build your confidence in him. Because someday he's going to take us home. And this life is going to be a memory, a distant memory. Memory, but a memory nonetheless. Things will be better. We'll be hidden with Christ forever in pure, unadulterated bliss. This life will be challenging. But as we look at the past provision of God's faithful works toward us, that gives us and anchors our hope on his future faithfulness. God has been good to us in the past. He'll carry us through this to take us to his glorious future. That's our hope. Let's pray. <laughs>